0: episode number 40, Martha Mann. All right, cut to edge of stage. Great. All right, color frost. Check. One, two, three. Check. Stand by, please. House to half. House out. Running key one, through Now, Welcome back to the Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. And I'm your hostess, Michael Cruz. And this week, a deep and delightful interview with venerable Canadian designer, Martha Mann. Once again, uh, this spring, of course, my studies took over for a little bit, so it's been almost two months since we had an episode. But I am back, and we'll be conducting new interviews over the next month in, hopefully, Stratford and Shaw. Uh, As well, the Bellows continues to meet, and there will be more Bellows episodes out soon. Now, Martha Mann began her career as a costume and set designer in the 1950s. Can you believe it in Toronto? So she knows what Canadian theatre is all about. Uh, She's done extensive research actually into the amateur movement, which is what uh, the modern professional theatre movement in in Canada came out of. Uh, And we talk about that in this conversation as well. Uh, You may remember her most for her clothes in the very popular Canadian films about Anne of Green Gables from the 80s and 90s. Uh, and she's worked extensively in opera all over North America. Just before we get to the interview, I want to remind you again of the Patreon page for this podcast. Please find us at the Title Block Podcast there and help me to produce the show. I just made some more purchases of microphones to support the Bellows' work and other panel's discussions, so some more help to pay for that equipment would be great. Uh, And as a reminder as well, that if you use this show to teach your students about the history of theater design, let me know. Email me at thetitleblock at gmail.com or drop me a message at my Facebook page or Twitter at thetitleblock.ca. Now, join me and Martha Mann as we stumble right into a conversation in August of 2016 about her long and fascinating career as a theatre designer in Canada. First of all, did you you grow up in in Toronto? I did. I did. Uh, And you went to, did you train here? Did you leave? Well,
1: um, I grew up in Toronto. My father had... Had a very brief career as an actor, uh-huh. and so and I was an only child for many years. I was taken to the theater at a very young age, and I was entranced from day one. Yeah. Uh, now, as I said to you previously, I was a year too old for the National Theater School. What I had wanted to do was to go to NYU. Uh, right. Uh, which I had talked to several people who were graduates, and it seemed the place to go and then they all the good ones all went on to Yale, of course. Uh but my father was very um I suppose I should say anti-American. Right. And in those days people just didn't rush off to go to school and did what their parents said and I the short version of that is that I didn't end up going. So there was nowhere that was teaching uh, stage design in any form. Uh, officially. And so I went to OCA and uh, through chatting up and a lot of hard work on my part, I managed to convince the principal to, rather than take a one discipline course, mm-hmm. to take bits here and bits there and bits from other places that I thought uh would be useful now the big mistake i made they are they were all useful the big mistake i made was not taking drafting because in my life as a stage as a set designer i you know was self-taught and it's always been a difficult process for me simply because i have no background in it uh, and how you do it properly but that's really where I came from, and then I, uh, I was at OCA for three years and then had evolved myself, as everybody in those days did who was interested in the theatre, in the University Alumni Dramatic Club. Mm-hmm. Um, and I designed the set, uh, and I guess the clothes too, although it was in contemporary dress, but I designed the set for the first production of James Rainey's The Killdeer*. Oh, wow which then went on to the Dominion Drama Festival, and I again won the set design trophy. And about a week later, out of a clear blue sky, I got a phone call from the artistic director of the London Little Theatre, which was one of the few outside the CBC positions in Canada that was paid in the theatre, offering me a job as the uh, set and costume assistant. And after a truly agonizing decision, I took the job and didn't go back for my fourth year at OCA, which probably, I mean, what it really meant was that a lot of things which you learn now at a school or a college, whichever you go to, uh, I had to teach myself or figure it out for myself. So, um, you know, you I was a quick learner and yes. <laughs> picked it up fairly soon, yes, and yes. I was at you know, thrown into working in a in a huge theatre. I mean, it's I don't know whether you know the Grand in London, but it's exactly the same size as the Royal Alexandra in Toronto. So I was from, you know, going to a theatre where I had done a lot of work, which was above a car repair garage, mm-hmm. to a great big real theatre that had flies and lights and a soundboard and, you know, things I'd practically never even seen before so that that was the kind of training that was available and then as I said the first year I was at the Grand was the first year of the theater school and then I think the second or third year they introduced the design program but by that time I was uh, was engaged to be married and I you know had some uh, work some work record behind me and you know, kept going and doing that. So this was, uh, uh, as you probably know, this was in the early 60s. 60, well, the the drama festival was in the spring, the summer of the spring of 1959, and then I went to London in 1960. And and they had always had uh, somebody who, again, like myself, was completely self-taught, Uh, as a designer uh, since they started. It was an interesting thing. That was a totally amateur theatre with a lot of money and a lot of very talented actors, yeah. but they had always had... And it was a, an IATSI house, so the sets were taking... I mean, the building was taken care of, but they'd always had a designer, which I always thought was interesting.
0: And how, uh, how long had they been around?
1: Oh, since the... I think the theatre sort of became the Grand and the London Little Theatre in the 1930s. Oh, wow. So that's yeah. a venerable. That's Yeah, it was, really, it was venerable. Yeah.
0: Uh, and the designers they had picked from, do you know where they came from? Was it local? Uh, was yes.
1: It well, some of them I do. Uh, Mark Nagan, I believe, was originally from Montreal, but had come to Toronto to, I think, go to the art college, but that I'm not positive of. And then my predecessor was Wilf Pegg, who... Was a graduate of the U of T and was just uh, interested in design and had designed a lot of sets for various community and amateur theater in Toronto. And uh, as I said, he was there for about five years.
0: Um, let's just step back a minute. While you were in OCA, yeah, you said you were, you worked with the university alumni. Yes. Here. Now, were they part of OCA or were they a separate? No, company? they Is were uh,
1: totally separate. They were. Probably one of the... I mean, there was a lot of very good amateur community theatre in Toronto, but they probably attracted the most interesting actors. I mean, you, you had to be a, a woman, you had to be a university graduate to belong, but, of course, the men, male parts were always invited. And, I mean, a lot of well-known Canadian actors, William Needles, John Colicus... Uh, other people, Ron Hartman, other people started by you know, acting in those plays and getting some kind of attention often through the drama festival. And then when there was uh, a, a theatre to go to act in in Toronto, they did, and most of them were radio actors right. or else they did something else and they were actors as a hobby. But um, a lot of the people who appeared with the alumni were in fact from the Toronto radio actors community, which was very strong and fairly large. And
0: uh, the uh, this is the predecessor of what we currently call the Alumni Theatre, is that yes, right? Yes, it yeah. is, so exactly. That's, so that's a long history of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's a history I'm completely unaware of, which yeah. is really... <laughs> it's a deficit, this is why I'm doing this, it's a deficit of my understanding of where yeah. we come from. I, I, I've always been uh, quite aware of the large amateur... Yeah. roots of most Canadian theatre uh, but it's incredible that the um, not only that that it's where professional theatre came from in Canada yeah. rather than sort of a training ground for people who then go no. up to another level no it's it is evolved. definitely
1: where professional theatre yes. well read my chapter in the theatre history of Ontario that my husband and I co-wrote and it's about the amateur the amateur theatre movement yeah
0: that's terrific. I will definitely do that. Yeah. What's the name of the book? It's
1: the it was. It's part of that series uh, of Ontario history, and this is the history of theatre. Or, Yeah, it's Ontario Theatre History, it's called, oh, right, okay. but it's part of a huge series right. that's ongoing. I mean, there's, you know, the history of the canoe, right. <laughs> the history of this and the history of that, and the theatre is just one of the things it's a history
0: of. It's very comprehensive. Yes. That's excellent. And what kind of things did you study at OCA? Was it uh, sort of... Yeah,
1: well, I spent a lot of time with the interior design people Ah. because uh, I'm not, I don't draw particularly well like some designers do. And I knew that that was an area that I really had to, you know, concentrate on. And there's a great difference between designing the lobby of a hotel and a set for Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. But the principles of Design. I mean, good design is good design, and bad design is bad. And uh, so I spent a lot of time with those people. I did a lot of, I spent a lot of time with some of the hand uh, design, in other words, weaving and sculpture, um, which, both of which I would have liked to pursue, but I never had time to get back to them, so to speak. And then I did as many drawing classes as I could. I was the bat noir of most of my teachers, but that,
0: that as well is not an unusual. Yes, <laughs> unusual thing for theater yes. designers as well, yeah. uh, especially when they're trying to you know get their own training together independent of some yeah. sort of larger structure. Uh, and then tell me about James Rainey's play. So, um, from what, uh, and you'll have to forgive me because I'm really ignorant of this kind of part of history. Um, the we tend to, or in on the podcast in the past, we've spoken about this sort of rise in uh, telling Canadian stories yeah. uh, professionally and being well, like this was the purpose of Canadian theatre. Um, well, I'm not sure that it was the
1: purpose. But. I mean, I think it may have been in the minds of the writers and certainly some of the audience, but I think it was just the time had come to establish a... Uh, a theatre in this country but I mean that that aspect of it is true because I remember a very good friend of mine who was a drama critic saying to me once you know and he'd been living in England for many years and working and he came back to Canada and he said you know Canadian plays are like it's like a postcard collection this play is telling you what it's like in Newfoundland and this play is telling you what it's like in the slums of Winnipeg and so that is to a certain extent that's true
0: yeah. and it sounds like the Dominion Drama Festival was an important player in sort of getting. Oh, it was to, very important. Can you tell me about what how you feel it sort of fed into that? The I, the well,
1: the I water. think I mean the theater performances as old as practically humanity, mm-hmm. and there's so even small communities in Canada often had a very active and very good drama mm-hmm. group. And so that what happened, uh, and they always brought an outside adjudicator in so there would be no, you know, I'm from Edmonton, so the play from Edmonton better win kind of thing. Um, and uh, so that I think the, the judging of the work at the drama festival was very sort of honest and straightforward. And <clears throat> a lot of people who, you know, came up, um, as I say, I keep, Saying mentioning John Colicos, uh, Al Kosick, who was at Shaw for years, uh, Ron Hartman, who had won best actor prizes at the DDF, the Dominion Drama Festival, then went on to hitch their wagon to either the beginnings of theater in Canada or most of them went to England, mm-hmm. but a lot of them did come back here and be the backbone of the early days of Canadian theater. Mm-hmm.
0: And w- it's interesting that uh, in a time, like we still have discussions about the the, the popular acceptance of design mm-hmm. as a part of theater. Yeah. Uh, and people understand it. It's not really talked about in in, in lay culture a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and yeah, at the time here, we're talking about the early 60s, there's awards for design mm-hmm. in these plays. And so it was still something that was very important, obviously, yeah. to the people who are organizing it. Um, how much... Um, what was the sophistic like? What was the sophistication level of the design that was being done at that it time? It was and-
1: wildly varied. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, if you go back to the and, and I can't speak really outside, of, not even Ontario, just Toronto, but uh, you know, there was the Arts and Letters Club, and there were a lot of, as I said, very strong amateur groups, uh, and some of them had you know artists who like to design Mm -hmm. sets and space and Mm -hmm. backdrops. I mean, in the archives of Hardhouse Theatre, there's a a little tiny quarter-inch maquette of a set. Nobody knows the name of the play because it's not Mm -hmm. on... that was designed by Lauren Harris, for heaven's sakes. I thought Steve Martin should have a look at it when he comes (laughs) to town. But so you always had, you know, a number of graphic artists and a number of painters Mm -hmm. uh, in any community around to you know, look at and figure out sort of what stage design was about. But it was very much an amateur activity. But, you know, again, you have to remember that there were some very good theatre magazines available, and I I suspect that if you lived in Flin Flon, Manitoba, you probably, you know, looked at a picture and said, oh, well, this is what this is supposed to look like. Because the interesting thing we found doing the chapter on amateur theatre was that you look at the program, and of course everybody in the community who worked on it has to be in the program. Yes. But, you know, you would look at the set crew and there would be 15 guys on it, and, you know, and it turned out that so-and-so was the dentist and he was right. the best carpenter, so... And the same with the costumes. And there was always somebody who would paint well enough to do, you know, whatever. And, and some of the work, I think, was probably very good. Some of it was probably equally very dreadful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just, but dreadful out of ignorance rather than lack of talent. Sure, yeah, of
0: course. Yeah. Uh, And and what did it take, um, first of all, what what was the contrast with the professional, the the theater that was going on in Canada at that time? We had, Stratford had started in the late 50s, right? Uh, COC was producing. Yeah. Um, We had obviously touring productions from the U.S. and the U.K. probably coming through. Um, How did that contrast, what was the sort of public perception of the community versus the the professional Well, I think
1: what happened was, as i 'm sure you do know, is that the community theater had it took a real nosedive and then I gather has now totally rebuilt itself i mean there 's a drama group in practically every mm-hmm. town in, in Ontario, and the drama festival has emerged in a much simpler mm-hmm. form and I'm, i, I can 't speak about what it is because i don 't know mm-hmm. but um And, uh, I mean, the perception was that I think it was a degree, too, of sophistication that suddenly you could... You know, in Toronto, there'd always been this huge audience for the American touring production. And so Toronto isn't probably the best place to actually start talking about. And uh, But a lot of people who had been interested in a community theatre... Uh, at least interested in theater design and making things and building things at a community level, managed to get themselves hired by these new burgeoning organizations. And that's really where it started. Now, the COC was always slightly different. Geiger Terrell was because it was called the Canadian Opera Company, Mm -hmm. and he was a German via Argentina. Uh, But he was very keen that it be Canadian, and he used a lot of the younger Canadian designers at the C.O.C. at the the C.B.C. and um, managed to find people like Suzanne Mess and Les Lawrence and that generation who are just a little bit older than I am um, to make it all work. Now, the sets weren't very sophisticated, but they were on the stage eventually at the Royal Alexandra Theatre, and uh, they were, I remember some of them being pretty good. Mm,
0: Um, That's great. Uh, Just before we um, get more into the specifics of your career coming out Mm. of OCA, um, what was your perception of the transition uh, away from the amateur um, tradition yeah, amateur tradition into uh, what was really a, a blossoming of the funding of the arts in Canada in the late Well 60s. I
1: think the people who the community theatre let's leave uh, radio actors out of this but I think the people in the community theatre always had another job I mean it was yeah. their hobby but they <clears throat> were, were pretty talented at their hobby so to speak and um, in, as I said, I think it did take a nosedive in terms of audience and also interest, which, but it's something that people enjoy doing, even if they're not very good at it. And I think that its revival in the last 10 years speaks to that. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, that's true. You know? yeah. Also, sorry, also to the need to have that kind of expression as well, yeah. I think, informed community mm-hmm. through that kind of shared. Mm-hmm. Um, theatrical experience. All right, so you leave um, you leave OCA, you go down to London. Yeah. How many seasons were you the... Were you, the you were the resident designer, mm. yeah. And how many seasons were you there?
1: I was there for three years.
0: Right, and what kind of... What did they produce? Oh, it- they
1: produced everything. Um, from very mainstream uh, American and Broadway uh, and, and West End London type plays... Um, they produced a full-scale musical every year. I mean, the first year I was there, (coughs) Victor Braun, who was from London, uh, was paid the vast sum of $1,000 because there was nobody who could sing it locally except Victor. (laughs) Anyway, the vast sum of $1,000 to come back and sing Emile de in South Pacific. Mm. Uh, and I remember it being, I was the first thing I, I didn't work on it cause I, that was before I, I, my, my show was the second one and it was the opener, but I went to see it and I remember it being pretty good, yeah, yeah, sure. you know, I mean, there were people who could actually dance. There were certainly people who could sing, yeah. uh, besides Victor and, uh, you know, it was amazing. Uh, they also tried to do. They did eight shows a year in the big theater, the the grand, and they tried to do two others uh, elsewhere that were, you know, avant-garde or really kind of off the map, and then two less avant-garde productions in the big theater. And of course, the attendance at them dropped considerably. I mean, it was not a particularly sophisticated audience, and uh, they were just, our theatre knowledge was very limited in those days. We just didn't know uh, about these plays. I mean, I remember the year we did uh, Marat Mm Sad. There was practically people picketing outside the theatre. But that was all part of the development of the Canadian theatre, you know.
0: Were there any, um, were there any, uh, plays being written specifically for them, like were local playwrights or Canadian well, playwrights. Well, right?
1: uh, there had been uh, Mrs. Brickenden, who was a great mover and shaker, and also a financial supporter of the grand, of the London Little Theatre. One of the founders uh, had written some one act plays, which I gather I've only read a few of them for my research for this for the chapter in the book, but they were quite good, and I gather they did get performed. Mm-hmm. Uh, if not on the main bill at the Grand, then, you know, on a Saturday matinee or some peripheral event. Um, But the only... I mean, James Rainey was not from London, but he was from that area. And uh, he... I mean, the reason that the Alumni Theatre did the Killdeer was because he was a great friend of one of their uh, members. And she... sort of came to go play reading meeting and said, you know, this is a kind of interesting play. He's a Canadian and we should be doing it. And we did. And, uh, you know. Uh,
0: and and uh, what was your first, what did you design first? Do you remember what you first did there?
1: Oh, my God. Oh, if I'd known you to ask this question. <laughs> um, okay. Isn't that awful? The years kind of get mixed up. I don't forget specific shows. The thing I think I designed first, and I may be giving you misinformation. I think was Life with Father, right. um, but and I did both the set and the clothes for that.
0: Uh, and and what was your experience? You had obviously designed stuff before, but yeah. that was the first. It was time very a big limited, space.
1: but I you yeah. know I did know what was supposed to happen and how particularly costumes worked. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people always say, oh, but it's so much more difficult to design serious plays than it is to design. Life with Father, let me tell you, was a nightmare to design. I've always said to people that I know exactly what hell is like. It's a continual performance of Life with Father. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because you've got the dog, the budgie, three complete meals to cook, and... A satin costumes to deal with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, yeah. uh, it, that that may be wrong, and if it is, oh, no, okay. uh, I may think what it was till the end of this interview. Oh, that's fine. And you be- can correct it. Yeah,
0: feel free to. Interject <laughs> interject. I think exactly.
1: that was it, and the way it worked was that there were eight productions, eight pr- productions a year, which all ran for ten. They did ten performances, except the musical, which they did twelve. And eight, six of them were designed by the resident designer. Of course, while I was there, that was me. And then the other two were designed by uh, local pe- people, Mo- usually the designer from the television station or some local artist or something. And they, the director was very clever and tr- always trying to pair the non-scenic designer but the artist with a play that, you know, they... Would work and it would,
0: right, right, right. Yeah, that's great. And what was your um? Now at this time, at this point, you were committed to working in theater. Was this yes. was it still a lark, or was this something that you? Oh no, like, no I was like, firmly
1: committed yeah. to this, absolutely.
0: Uh, and when did you? Uh, when did you realize? Was there a moment you realized that you were you were going to make it, or was it like was it, was it all a struggle? Or
1: um, well, there wasn't much. There wasn't a lot of competition. A. Uh, except the people at the CBC. And um, so that there, you know, if there was work going, I didn't mean that I got it all the time, but I did get a fair amount of work. I did, you know, some shows at the Crest. uh, And there were independent productions that um, I remember doing. The first YPT show, for instance, which happened in the museum theatre and was a script... Um, by a Canadian actor whose name I now can't remember uh, of Alice in Wonderland you know so there was a lot of stuff going around and then after I married I had two children very quickly and there was a kind of hiatus but I did manage to try and do you know at least two shows a year and a lot of those Those one year both shows were at The Crest um,
0: and just before we talk about The Crest let's uh, talk about your your time at CBC. Um, how did you get?
1: No, I never, I never worked. Oh, you never C- worked at the CBC. Oh, I'm no. sorry, sorry. I applied once for a job in the wardrobe, in the costume design department and Hillary Corbett got the job. And that was, then I thought, no, I'm just, I don't want to do that. Yeah, exactly. You know, okay. I was more interested in, in, in live production yeah. theater.
0: Of All right. Well, let's talk about the, tell me about the crest and I've heard of the crest. Yeah. I don't know much about it. So, um, uh, Tell me about what what are especially for people who have never heard of it um, what it was and well it, it
1: was um, the uh, a family called the Davises Murray and his brother Donald and their sister Barbara um, came from a very wealthy family in Toronto and they'd been both the two brothers had been very successful actors at the University of Toronto and had started a summer theatre, the Straw Hat Players, uh, close to their family summer home. And they, you know, used, as I said, people they'd been at university with or, again, well-known radio actors. And um, I don't know how many seasons of the Straw Hat Players there were before they rented... um, movie theater on Mount Pleasant Avenue which had a stage in it because it had been a sort of pseudo vaudeville theater and started doing a season of plays. They ran for well it was very like summer stock. They ran for two two weeks each and um, did an incredible variety of work. I mean they did not a lot but they did some Canadian plays. They did a lot of new English plays which were causing a sort of worldwide literary sensation. And they did a lot of golden oldies as well. And it was very successful for a number of years. And then it, uh, it I think it, I think, you see, I think all theatres, except, you know, possibly the National Theatre in Britain and the Royal Shakespeare and Stratford and Shaw, they run their course, and I think that's what happened with The Crest. And they've been replaced in a strange way. Run very differently in a very different sort of ethos of how they work. But Soul Pepper is, you know, now like the early days of the Crest. Albert might not like to hear me say that, but it's true. I mean, they do a huge, you know, they do Soul Pepper does a huge mixture and variety of things. Uh, they're bolder and do a larger variety than the crest did, but you also have to build an audience, you know. That's
0: true. And uh, and uh, when what years was this was this operating
1: Oh, Just so we have the, let's see, I would say probably nineteen fifty five. No, earlier than that, probably fifty two or fifty three. Mm-hmm. And when they closed, I, I wouldn't be prepared to say it was certainly well into the 60s. I mean, I think it had a, had about a 10-year run. Yeah,
0: okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, that's great. And so um, uh, after you left London, you moved back to Toronto. We
1: moved back to Toronto. And okay. as I said, a lot of time was devoted to having two babies, yeah, exactly. more or less at the same time. Yeah. And then I again was, and it was a, This was a hard choice to make. Um, I was offered the job at Hard House Theatre as head of design, and I knew that this was going to, in many ways, close me off from certain other theatres because I wouldn't be able to get away. I mean, I would either have to do the job at the university or I would have to continue to work freelance, and after a really hard-fought decision with myself and my family... I took the job at Hart House because I, for a lot of reasons. I mean, they were doing very interesting things. They had quite interesting budgets mm-hmm. to work with. They weren't huge, but they weren't 50 cents for the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I was there for a number of years, many years, until I basically academically retired. Right. Um, you know, and then, we, I mean, when I first went there, we did four shows a year in Hart House because it was... a Part of subscription, and then the students did shows in the theatre on the old uh, uh, Russian Orthodox Church on Glen Morris Street, and that number varied, and I designed very few of those because the purpose of it was to be a student theatre. And then when the University of Toronto bought the old Central Library building, there was a theatre just sitting there waiting. So we moved out of Hart House, Uh, and did only six productions at the Robert Gill Theatre and um, it continues more or less the same until this day. The student audience again took a huge nosedive in the 70s and now the last couple of things I've seen there have not only been very good but they've been practically sold out. So there is now an audience on the campus It's come back to that. Excuse me. Certainly. Uh, Which is a good thing. But as you know, even if you're not lighting things, there are now theatres springing up all over the place. I mean, you know a theater above a cigar store or whatever it is, and yes. down in a pizza place, I think, on the Danforth. Yes. And, you know, I look at the entertainment page now and I have to figure out where on earth the X, Y, Z or whatever it's called, theater actually is. Yeah, right. You know, and it turns out to be in the basement of a garage on Alcorn Avenue <laughs> or somewhere, you know. But, I mean, and I think that's a very healthy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, I mean, the, the huge thing we were talking about design was not only the theater school, but now there are so, I think, probably if we examined it, too many, but um, I'm not sure about that, theater training programs in colleges and universities right across the country. And I mean, what that means is that a lot of people, you know, go through the program and only the cream rises to the top. Yeah, that's For various, you know, reasons, people change their minds or whatever.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Let's just go back to the hard House for a second. So, who were you working with there? Who was there? Was an artistic director? Yes. uh,
1: Well, I worked there as a student at the Art when I was at the Art College for Robert Gill. I did two shows for him,
0: and then. um, And and just, just, I'm going to interrupt you. What was it like working with him? Because I don't know a lot about him.
1: Um, well, he he was a genius in many ways. He knew exactly what he was dealing with and what he was doing, and he had a real eye for spotting talent. I mean, he seemed to be able to tell in the first 10 minutes whether somebody could act or not. And he was very encouraging of designers. Now, there weren't a lot of people. I mean, there, he occasionally used people who were in the fine art department. And me uh i i i was thinking how the, how it actually worked i met him and was talking about design I, I met him socially and was talking about design and about a year and a half later he must have remembered who i was or somebody told him or something because i was still at the art college and uh, he asked me to design uh, a play of Shaw's, which nobody ever does, called The Simpleton of the Unexpected right. Islands. And then the next year I designed something else for him. honey was there. And then they tried to make it into a professional theatre, and that didn't work at all. There were two or three seasons of two, I guess, yes, of that. And then it went into serious decline because the Drama Centre, uh, I mean, as a student theatre, went into serious decline. Then the Drama Centre was able to kind of bring it back up to a certain degree. But they had always had a great deal of difficulty uh, getting a student audience, mainly because sometimes the choice of material was was unheard of. I mean, you know, people aren't going to plonk down that kind of money for something they know nothing about. Mm -hmm. Um, So the mix of things they do now is, I I really think is what's brought it back, is that, you know, they do a musical every year. And so you go and see that, and then you think, well, that wasn't too bad, so I'll go and see something else. And, I mean, they haven't brought the subscription up like in the days of Robert Gill, but it's it's coming back. Mm And uh, you know, it's a very difficult theater to work in. I mean physically. Yeah. And but that doesn't seem to stop anybody, and I'm I'm really glad to see that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, where I think I mean this is a complete sidebar. Okay. Where I think OCA really missed the boat was not instituting a state program in stage design. Right, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I don't know whether that was a conscious decision or whether the you know, the horse just walked too fast by, but for some crazy reason, yeah. it the training of design, theater design, has fallen mostly to um, the universities. Yeah. That's
0: right. Yeah, I, I, always, I always, sorry, I always found that kind of strange as well. Yeah. It, was, yeah, it didn't have those programs.
1: Yeah, well, You see, if you look at, if you read biographies of, for instance, most French-Canadian designers have, you know, the late, great Francois Barbeau and people, they all went to L'Ecole des Beaux-Arts, you know, which is like an art school. It's not a university. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: Which in many ways is, um, it seems like what's missing at the university level. There seems to be, um, for example, I went to Ryerson, uh, theater school and, uh, I think the same thing happened at York where we really had a I mean, there was so much else that they wanted to teach you yeah. that you really couldn't sit there and just think about design and about art history and about yeah. um, the designer as an artist as opposed to mm. as a technician. Yes. Uh, and, uh, it, uh, yeah, it feels like that's missing. Something, yeah, well, that's it,
1: always seemed to me extremely peculiar that the exhibitions that there have been on stage... Well, design for the theater, mm-hmm. because I mean, there are now ways that you can actually display sound and lighting. Right, right, right. Uh, have never happened at an art gallery. Yeah. I think that's I think that's disgraceful. Yeah. <coughs> you know that there is so much theater in Ontario. I mean, just because there are so many, there are a couple of big cities, but the the art gallery has never had a a, a national exhibition of stage design. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, kind of but loved. they'll
1: have David Bowie's clothes. Yes, that's true, that's
0: true. <laughs>
1: Which I didn't, I mean, they're wonderful costumes, yeah. but uh, it didn't quite strike me as being totally connected to yeah, art in right. the way we understand it. And I think that's part of the problem, yeah. is that stage and costume design and lighting design and sound, they are arts. Yeah. And uh, the lighting and, and sound are fairly new theater arts, mm-hmm. but...
0: And video for that yeah, matter and video as well. yeah. whatever now, do you think that maybe there was a um, there was a bit of a bias against it because of the amateur nature? Yes, of I do
1: theater? Yeah. you were going to take the words right out of my yeah. mouth that it was something that you did for a hobby, yeah. and I think that the people who were teaching at oCA at the time were practically 100% members of the Arts and Letters Club. And their ha- their hobby was that, you know, they would come and paint the backdrop or build some furniture for the tour. Because the Arts and Letters Club used to have a very active theatre. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the names of the people who did it, you know, you might go, oh, my God, this is practically yeah. the history of Canadian art. Yeah. But I think there was a huge bias that it was a thing you did for your hobby it wasn't real. Mm-hmm. And I think also it was a lack of sophistication. I mean, I think we're, you know, and art, art schools were being run by artists and not necessarily interested in the theater and not interested in, you know, who some really of the great theater designers working at the time were, yeah. you know. I mean, I'm, I, I always used to say this when I was a student. I think if you'd stopped ten instructors at OCA who were wonderful teachers and said, "Tell me what you know about Joe Malziner, mm-hmm. you know, they would have looked at you blankly and said, "Well, you know, does he go to the school?" <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so, as I said, I think that I think that's a very important and pertinent part that it was prejudice. Mm-hmm. I guess that. You know.
0: And speaking of prejudice, uh, let's talk about being a woman in the arts in the 1960s. Did you feel like this was a an easy opportunity for you, or did you have to fight a little well, bit to get people? People
1: always convinced? ask Suzanne and other people more or less my age this question. And um, there was a bit of a bias that, that girls should only do clothes. Um, but there wasn't, there was, I really. Don't I can't think, except possibly one instance where I didn't even get a sensible interview uh, because they were going to have uh, a man as their resident designer. Um, So I can't say that I was ever very aware of, you know, a great prejudice against women designers. And I mean, you know yourself now, if you look at the big theaters, 99% of stage managers yeah. are now women. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just the weirdest thing. It, and it, it that wasn't conscious on anybody's part. It just kind of morphed into, yeah. you know. And, I mean, the stage last summer, or was it the summer before? Anyway, I looked at the Stratford program and realized that the entire stage management team, except for Brian, what's his name, <laughs> was more women, yeah, yeah. you know. And, uh, that's, interesting. and then that's interesting. And I think it's, it's very much happened. Uh, I mean, I think also big names designing on Broadway and in the West End mm-hmm. had a lot to do with it too. I mean, you know, the great revolutionary Gene Rosenthal, mm-hmm. you know, lighting <coughs> Broadway shows, yeah. uh, very quickly changed people's perceptions of that. And they thought, well, if she can do lighting, that's after all guys and lights and things like that, you know. Maybe women can do it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and she invented that term lighting designer yeah, really she as did, well. right, really. So that's incredible. Um, oh, that's great. Uh, now, you, uh, coming out of the 60s, we had this birth of sort of Canadian theatres at the yeah. end of the 60s, right? And the start of the factory and the territory at least in Toronto. Yeah. Uh, and, and a rise of the things like Theatre Calgary and... Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, Playhouse, I think in Vancouver, in the late sixties, yeah. early seventies. Uh, I could be wrong about that. <clears throat> um, but uh, where did you find yourself fitting into that kind of rebirth? I mean, this is really came out of well, a lot I didn't of hippie really, culture because
1: at that, like that too, right? time, as I said, I was still semi-retired with children, mm-hmm. uh, and I did some stuff. As I said, I did some stuff at the end of the crest. I did, you know, some independent stuff. Um, but I didn't. Also, there were at that. They were the first graduates of the theatre school emerging at that time. And I'm not saying that, you know, they were better or anything than I was, but they were just getting a lot of the jobs. And also they'd work cheaper, if you really want the honest truth. And I'd started to do film at that point. Ah, Yeah. I mean, not in the very, very early days Mm -hmm. of alternate theatre in Toronto, but very pretty quickly Mm -hmm. into that and, I mean, if you're doing film, you're doing that for 48 hours in a single day. Yeah. And there was no time to do anything else. And also, I started uh, working with, with Leon Major a lot in doing opera south of the border. Right.
0: Okay. So that's great. So tell me about um, your entrance into film. How did you get your first break and how did you find your way? Because the two I kn- communities are really separate. I kn- right?
1: They're totally different. Yeah. I knew nothing about film. Uh Kevin Sullivan had been a uh, student at the university when I first went there, and he was obviously a mover and shaker he when he was i suspect when he was three years old, but when I knew him, he was more like nineteen and he had done a small film he was always interested in film, not the theater and he had always he had done a small film of uh this Hans uh, Christian Andersen story of the fir tree mm-hmm. at Pioneer Village. And he didn't know anybody who knew anything about costumes, and he didn't know anything about costumes, so he said, you know, there's only four people in this or something. There were five, I think. Will you do it? Right. And I did, but it was basically... I just found the costumes, fitted them, and they, the, the set was Pioneer Village, so I didn't have to do any of that. Right. Right. And off they went. And then he did... Um, What was next? I guess the film about Krieghoff was next, which I did, with and I had a very good assistant who had had some film experience because she had been to a film program, I think, at Calgary. And uh, then he did...
0: So that was the Canadian... Canadian That was the
1: Canadian film. Yeah. It wasn't a feature. It's a short, hour-long drama about Krieghoff, the painter. The painter, yeah. And then after that, what did he do? Can't remember. It's irrelevant. And then I read, literally in the paper, that he had got the rights to do this film of Anne of Green Gables and this proceeding ahead. So I phoned him. That literally, I got up from the dinner table, practically, and phoned him And um, because he knew I knew what I was doing about clothes. Excuse me. He hired me, and it was, a, as you know, an incredible success. And you only need one success like that before you get to be, if not the flavor of the month, at least the flavor of the day or the week. And uh, But as you also probably know, f- film for me is, is a young man, a young person, not young man, young person's job, uh, I mean, it's physically hard work, particularly if you're doing a lot of exterior stuff. And, um, you know, I, I, I just... I, the, again, the band hasn't passed by. I just really didn't want to do it anymore. The last, Hannah uh, Green Gables, the prequel, I which I love doing, but it was... It was hard work, and I just said, you know, you're too old for this. And somebody said to me, after I, you know, said basically, I don't think I'm going to do film anymore. But Anne Roth, (laughs) is ninety, and she's still well, she was eighty-eight at the time, still doing movies. I said I could do it if I had six assistants too, but I don't have six assistants, (laughs) and I don't have, you know, four Oscars and twenty Tonys to my (laughs) name. So nobody is going to give me six assistants. I mean, I would still love to be doing a. A show in the theater, if it wasn't too huge, mm-hmm. uh, but we'll just see if it comes along. It may not ever come again, and I'll just have to accept that. Yeah, sure. okay. uh, I understand. And, uh,
0: uh, and now, tell me about the opera that you did south of the border. So, what were you what were you working on? Well,
1: again, I'd worked with Leon uh, here in Toronto. We were friends as well as workmates, and um, I just he asked me to do something for him, and I did two. Things at Glimmerglass, and then the artistic director of Glimmerglass became the artistic director of the New York City Opera, which is now defunct, unfortunately. And I so I did you know a couple of things there, and then I did some other things that were not. I mean, by that time I'd got a little bit of a reputation, and I think I worked for The Price is Right, and so I did some independent stuff. You know, not for Leon, I did a thing for Miami Opera and uh, several other places. And, I mean, that was wonderful, you know.
0: Uh, any favourite productions from that time that you think that was a real success for you? And oh, it really- was
1: for, Was yeah. the show at Glimmerglass. I mean, I tell you, because <laughs> it's one of my favourite stories. <clears throat> when it came to City Opera in New York... It was one of those days in the world where nothing happens. I mean, you know, nobody was shot, nobody blew up, there were no floods. And uh, Lauren Flanagan, who was singing the lead, was a great favourite of New York City opera. And the review ended up on the front page because it was the most (laughs) interesting thing that happened that day in New York. I mean, it is, after all, called the New York Times. And uh, the review, I can't remember the exact wording, but it said something like to the effect, if uh, it was admiring the looks of the man who played the the lead, the male lead, and said, if we could all just have costumes by Martha Mann, maybe we'd all look like that. <laughs> it was, you know, quite a surprise. I got a lot of phone calls from friends and yeah. other places saying, have you seen today's dance? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, you know but it's it, i mean it, that kind of thing comes i mean it was a fluke because if there'd been a presidential assassination sure. in you know some african country the review would have been buried inside the right, paper right, but right,
0: yeah. <clears throat> that's great so that i
1: mean that was a kind of high that
0: yeah. and how did you feel like you had been working in uh uh, up until that point, you'd done some film at that point, yeah. but, but a lot of your theatre experience had been in Toronto and yeah. London. And, and how did how did you um, manage the transition to working in New York and with those uh,
1: artists? It, basically, it? it's the same. You know, a costume is a costume. I was only doing clothes. I never did a set because I'm not a member of uh, United Senior Card. <coughs> um, but it, making clothes is making clothes, you know. I mean, it, there's there was so much more to choose from, and so much more talent that I was suddenly working with. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you'd go into, uh, I can't even remember what they were called, but one of the well-known costume shops in New York, but it was very small because they'd only ever done men's clothes. And uh, it was run by three sisters... (laughs) I'm not making this up. Who, when I was doing the the things at, at for we were doing a remount at New York City Opera, and so we had to make some quite a lot of new clothes anyway. So you went up two flights of stairs to their atelier, mm-hmm. and they were the, they really did look like you know, the opening scene from Macbeth. I'm not kidding. They were in their 80s. And, you know, we sat down, we showed them drawings. I talked to them. They asked questions of a great deal of sense. And then they went off on a riff about, you know, when we used to make costumes for X, Y, and Z. And you realize that this was the history of the American theater. It was in this room, you know, amazing. Amazing and uh, but as i said good costume makers are good costume makers we i mean what i wasn't used to was that of course in a broadway type house even in new york city opera they don't have a wor- they have a wardrobe but it's basically just for alterations if you know so some like the men's suits were made by the three old ladies a lot of them you know the women's clothes the leads were made by another person the Another person was made, you know, so that...
0: it's um, a lot of running around. It was a
1: lot of running around, which <laughs> I wasn't used to. Right. You know, but, but on the other hand, you know, you go to the button store, right. and there's like a wall of buttons twice the size of this room, and you go, oh, my God, I've got to choose something. <laughs> so, uh, but yes, it was a wonderful experience, which I wouldn't have missed for anything.
0: And what was the name of the show? I don't. I think we missed. Oh, it
1: was called. Um, oh my God, Intermezzo.
0: Intermezzo. Okay,
1: it's a late opera of Richard Strauss, which nobody ever does because it's scenically very difficult, yeah. and costumes are a nightmare because right. most of it takes place at a ski resort oh, right. in the Alps, <laughs> and so uh, you know. And again. Uh, well, that's another anecdote about how word spreads. I got a phone call after I got home, what three days after it opened, from somebody in New York, because I did the readout on the phone and realized they were in New York who were new with this. And it was the head of the wardrobe at Radio City Music Hall. And he had seen Intermezzo and read the program because there there was so much knitting. I mean, there were like sweaters, hats, mitts, socks, everything, because they're they're skiing. And he said, and and it was just a name, you know, and who is he and how can I get in touch with him? And so a friend of mine here who did all the knitting Mm -hmm. ended up doing... 48 or whatever they however many of them there are identical frocks for the Rockettes oh, wow. who are doing a ski and skating number for Christmas right yeah.
0: you yeah. know now we have sort of knitting machines and yes. things like that yeah right? yeah well they were most a, of
1: this was machine knit yeah. but you still got to do them for yeah. Radio City Music Hall oh, which was kind of fun that's, that's
0: awesome um, a lot of the theme uh, uh, or a lot of things one of the things we've talk, been talking about a lot about oh my god let me start again One of the things we've been talking about a lot on the podcast is about uh, the precariousness of uh, artisanal uh, memory Mm -hmm. in Canadian theatre and how uh, we're kind of losing as the generation that was trained in the 50s and 60s uh, and 70s is getting older. We're kind of losing um, a lot of talent. Well, um, I think we're losing
1: a lot of history, too, mm -hmm. is that as i said i don't know whether you know but rh thompson was doing um a program or doing a project yeah. of trying to interview all sorts of different vari- i mean everybody from actors to mm-hmm. practically you know the lady who sold the tickets yeah. uh for the canadian theater museum and i don't know whether that program is gone nowhere or whether it's still happening and Nobody wants to talk to me, but no, I do think that this is true. I mean, I think that an awful lot of, for instance, you know, in the 20s when Harthouse theater Theatre uh, was a going concern uh, and doing really the best, you know, non or the best native theatre in, it wasn't Canadian plays, but it was Canadian performers and everything. And, as I said, nobody got to talk... Nobody had the brains to talk to anybody. And when they realized they should be doing this, half the people were gone and the other half were 85. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was just... And I think this is still happening, you know. Yeah, I, agree. Uh, I mean, I just think, you know, oral history, if that's the only way you can do it, mm-hmm. is wonderful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember... <laughs> It has nothing to do with the theater at all, but being to a fabulous exhibition, of it was called "Wartime Britain" at the national at the. It's not national; it's the the War Museum in London. Anyway, whatever it's called, yeah. the it's called the Imperial the Imperial War Museum, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And it was just you know ration books and things. And then there was a whole section of oral history, of you know like the rear six wax and six something else. And then there were just a couple of interviews with Ordinary Housewives and the interview with the lady whose wedding dress was made out of a parachute. Uh, And you thought, this is fair. I mean, I thought I'll I'll press the button to play and listen to it for a minute. Well, I listened to the whole thing because it was fabulous, fabulous. I mean, the lady whose wedding dress was made out of the parachute Said yes, I will talk to you. But if you ask me where I got the parachute, you won't find out. So if that's your only interest, forget it.
0: That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, no, I I completely agree. This is why we're doing this kind of this kind of recording is because nobody is really. I mean, there's there's a there was a book out of a. Oh, I'm going to remember. I'm going to forget the name. Uh, Out of Queens, I think there was a researcher there who sort of who gathered a bunch of uh, six to eight Canadian designers and sort of showcased their work in the in the book, and it captured obviously some important Canadian theater history. But uh, there's a lot that's going completely forgotten Mm -hmm. and missing.
1: You know, and I think I think that's really a problem. I mean, you know, there's all that material. There's a lot of material has, of course, been lost. But there's all that material at the Toronto Public Library. There's all that material at Guelph. And, you know, university archives across the country have some stuff mm-hmm. uh, pertaining to, you know, Canadian both professional mm-hmm. and amateur theatre. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I just think people don't even know it's there. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah,
0: that's true. It, it's
1: it's, uh, it's I, I just think it's a huge problem that we're just letting so much of the, you know, We know so much. I mean, we know every time they took a breath about the group of seven, quite frankly. That's right. You know, but something that is an ongoing process or has an ongoing process in this country, we're just letting huge gaps develop because we don't know anything about it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I know that one of the problems, I spoke with Pat Flood about this down at Guelph, um, is that they uh, a lot of the archives... I mean, uh, blueprints and uh, scripts and things Mm -hmm. like that can preserve, you know, rather well. Uh, But things like uh, maquettes, uh, which are sometimes the only record of the actual, Mm -hmm. how all the pieces fit together in a design, uh, take a lot of work to restore and to archive. Um, And... There's a, probably, there's a combination, I think, of lack of funding and lack of interest in uh, archivists. And also with that the work.
1: maquettes, it's lack of space. Yeah, and
0: then you have to store <clears> it. Something, something
1: as simple as lack of space. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: great. Uh, but as I
1: said, back to what I said, you know, an hour ago, the fact that, that the Art Gallery of Ontario has not had mm-hmm. an exhibit of designs for the theatre you know, even if it's restricted, well, it can't be restricted because then you cut out Stratford, but I mean it just should be there. These are the theaters. these are the people who and I mean let's face it, what made Stratford initially was what it looked like. Yeah. you know
0: yeah, that's true. All right, let's leave it there for a second. We'll take a break because we're, we're an hour in yeah. and, uh, and then we'll come back and talk about your theory of design <laughs> and we'll talk about your process and what you think is missing or should be added. Hi there, I'm interrupting briefly to ask you once again to support the title block on Patreon.com Click on support the show in the show notes. This will bring you to my Patreon page where you can donate a small amount every episode. I'm just asking that you help to cover the cost and help me to continue to capture the story of Canadian theatre design. Go to Patreon.com slash the title block podcast and donate a couple bucks an episode. It really helps. So when you were starting out uh, in, the, uh, in the early 60s, um, did you have any opportunity to assist or work with other designers to sort of learn as an apprentice? Or was No,
1: that- there wasn't any such thing as apprenticing. Uh, I mean, if you were the costume designer, in some cases you were expected to make them as well as right. design them. Uh, and I mean, I'm not making this up. You were. They thought that's what costume designers did was really make clothes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, and the, uh, what I think the assistance that I had, not assisting other people, but was just watching people who knew, had been doing it for longer than I had. I mean, like the carpenter at the Crest, a wonderful man called Stan Turner, had worked at the Royal Opera House for many years. And just being in the same shop while he was building something was a lesson in itself. Yeah. And... Uh, so that was the assistance I got, but I didn't ever assist, really properly assist anybody <coughs> in the way we use assistance now.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and how about theatre training at the time? I mean, you, didn't, uh, you went to OCA. Um, what did you feel when you, when you met designers or worked with them on productions that had come from those uh, theatre programs? Well, on?
1: that... Nobody knew very much except the possible people uh, who had been European-trained in either film or theatre knew much about how to do it either. So there wasn't... I mean, there was a certain feeling of groping around, there must be a way to do this, but I don't know what it is. Um, And there was... I mean, if you talk to the designers my age or even... 10 years younger, there was, as I said, a certain degree of there, there's got to be a way to do this, but we had to figure out for ourselves what it was.
0: Yeah. Uh, was there much of a network of uh, communications across the country to figure out those pro- kind of problems? Like- no,
1: because there was no internet, so you couldn't just press in and hope for some information to come up on a screen. Mm-hmm. And there really was no real communication except people traveling. To you know, work in other cities, uh, there was really no communication because there was so little theater outside right. big cities in those days. Um, there, I mean, there just wasn't anybody to ask who knew more than you did. I mean, I remember phoning people like Lou Killig, who used to, again, you know, had worked for years in costumes in England and saying, do you know anybody who makes gloves or, you know, whatever? Uh, And he did, but, of course, they were always in England, and in those days that was not, you know, by the time you got it organised, the show had closed. So that wasn't much help. But there there were a lot of people in the technical end of it, strangely enough, who held the sort of positions in at the CBC and at places like Malabar's and and in the theaters that grew up that um, had worked in you know the A places in Europe or in England, right. and they were certainly around and they knew how to do it, but they ob- often didn't know anybody else who did, and there was nobody in Canada. I mean the famous story of, you know, the boots the first year at Stratford, somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who had a cousin who knew somebody right. said, there is a guy on college street who I think makes shoes. Right. <laughs> Maybe right. we could find him. And they did. And he made shoes for years right. at Stratford, yeah, right. but it was just happenstance.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about some other highlights of your career before we move on to sort of more structural questions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, after you uh, went coming into the 70s and 80s, so first of all, what was your film career? What was the arc of the film career? You did that up until like only yeah, the last I thing coming. I
1: did was in 2008,
0: I yeah, think, so yeah. fairly, fairly yeah. recently. Um, in, in the uh, 70s and 80s, then where was the bulk of your work coming from? Were you just were you freelancing? Oh, I was workplace? freelancing, yeah.
1: whoever would hire me,
0: yeah, yeah. And what about um, uh, what were some. Uh, show highlights like what would you what do you remember that was like a really important show for you uh during that period of time or do you you can take a moment you know Uh, um, (laughs) well
1: I'm just thinking after the Anne of Green Gables which certainly wasn't in the 60s it was later than that but after the success of the movie I became the sort of Anne of Green Gables (laughs) guru of Canada I mean not only did I get fan mail which was a real surprise for a designer oh, but I also did the musical uh yeah, yeah. out at Theatre Calgary yeah. which was a lot of fun because it's an entirely different yeah. you know thing it's a it's a musical they sing and dance and yeah. uh do a lot of that sort of stuff so it was that was great fun to do and it was well, it was a highlight because you know I knew what I was doing and it was basically you know we're not just recreating the movie which is what of course, the kids who came to see it we were hoping to see, but yeah. we did most of most of the stuff was there
0: yeah
1: so uh, and that was that was a huge highlight, and as I said, working in well working at the New York City Opera was certainly a highlight yeah, yeah. and um yeah
0: and did you uh, did you have any connection to the Charlottetown festival like they've done they're kind of known for the Anna Green Gables kind of franchise out
1: there right? uh well no <laughs> i mean they they're still using the sets and costumes that are how many years
0: old? Yeah, that's true, yeah.
1: Because they're fabulous. I mean, they're, very, they're, they're the crazy thing about those is, I mean, they're not using the same clothes, they're the same designs, more or less. The crazy thing about those is that they went to- totally out of fashion, right. but then they've been using them so long that they came totally back into fashion right. again, right. and they're really quite wonderful. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's talk about some structural things then. Um, when you now you had largely sort of to to figure out your own process, uh, when yes we were I mean, out. I
1: was never a carpenter yeah. uh and painting is painting, so yeah. you know you that's not much to teach yourself mm-hmm. um I mean, and I was never a great scenic artist, as I said, because I will freely admit I don't draw very well, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean I can't design, oh. I just don't have a technical skill which a lot of designers do i mean somebody like Michael Egan in Montreal, his construction drawings are works of art. They should be on the stage, never mind the yeah. people. Uh, but, uh, so as I said, I think that the things, and I did know something about sewing, but i for instance, I was never a cutter, yeah. you know, because that, again, is a very trained skill. Mm-hmm. So when I was actually making costumes, which was the first year I was at the Grand, uh, and I was very young and very inexperienced. And I, I mean, I had to, I used to, you know, work till 11 o'clock at night trying to figure out what to do next. And I didn't want a whole bunch of people standing around mm-hmm. waiting to be told because I thought I am supposed to know what I'm doing. And 99% of the time it worked out. But, you know, there is, And I, but I think you're always doing that as an artist. I think you're always saying, you know, this is, I, I have this idea or I have, a thought about what's going to work here, but I am not sure how to do it. And I mean, as the theater becomes more and more technical, uh, people, the, the designers of the various disciplines, have to be uh, more and more connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how do
0: you feel uh, about the idea that the designer's uh, vision? It's kind of mediated by the people who are implementing it like do you uh, do you rely um, how much does that interaction change the design or are you very specific about no it has to be this way and um,
1: it depends what it is if somebody comes to me with a better idea uh, I will listen and say well yeah it is a good idea but we're not having it or yeah let's try it um, But, uh, yes, I am very detail-oriented as a designer because I think that's very important, very important in what you're doing. And if I say it has to be... I mean, for instance, when I did, the last thing I did before I broke my leg and my hip at the same time uh, was doing the play about Glenn Gould at Soul Pepper. And one of the things it says in the script, because Glenn Gould actually had two of them in his apartment... That his section of the stage is basically an Eames chair. Now Eames chairs are two over two thousand dollars, and I said to the prop people, "I don't know what we're going to do here. Either we're going to have Diane's going to have to cut the lines about the wretched chair, or we're going to have to, you know, fake it or do something because we certainly can't afford it." Well, lo and behold, onto the internet she goes, and she finds. An Eames chair that unfortunately was uh, the, somebody must have really maltreated because they last forever, but the leather was cracked. And I, can't, I said, there's got to be something else wrong that nobody is selling an Eames chair for that amount of money if there's nothing else wrong with it. Yeah. So it was in... So I said, no, it was further away than Newmarket. Anyway, it was somewhere north. Mm-hmm. And she went to see it, and that was all that was wrong with it, right. was that somebody was selling it because the leather, it needed to be reupholstered, right. in other words. So, you know, we lucked out. And sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, uh,
0: I'm, not, I'm not a costume designer. I've never designed costumes, <laughs> and, I, and I don't. I
1: Didn't you have to don't... make a shirt at Ryerson? Everybody oh God, made a shirt at Yeah, Gene Charles
0: Black maybe make a shirt with mutton sleeves <laughs> and it was a terrible experience. If, uh, especially since the my my model <laughs> I had uh God bless him, John Hughesman. He's a he I, I think he's still working in he works in uh in the uh, live uh, uh live entertainment the uh, sorry, the, the 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 like the rock and roll um uh, trade show yeah i think market, he's right? still
1: working in those uh
0: and and he uh i was he was my model and so he's about six and a half feet tall and he's a big he's a really big guy he's, so he's not like the normal <laughs> he's not sort of the paragon of sort of the average man <laughs> and i had to make this giant jacket for him <laughs> which was uh i and i'd never sewed before it was a it was an experience that was I you, know, I, I, you could write me. a book
1: about Guys making their shirt at Ryerson. It's
0: true. It's very <laughs> true. It was, I mean, it was. A, I, I ended up taking costume history there because it mm-hmm. was something that I felt was really important, yeah. and I really enjoyed um, learning about the shapes and stuff. But I don't have an intuition about costumes, <laughs> about how the body takes fabric and how yeah. things are put together. So I've never done that. But um, uh, when you are like, how, did you learn that? Uh, you must have had to learn that. In, more or less intuitively because it wasn't did you have that opportunity at OCA? I did I was always interested
1: yeah. in clothes I yeah. was not particularly interested in sewing yeah. uh and there were there was really basically one costume history book in the when I went to OCA we had two books on costume history now there's a whole section sure. on costume history um so there wasn't much interest in it and I had the two books I owned them and you know said, okay, that's the shape it's supposed to be, but there's no measurements on it, but at least I've got something to go on. And I certainly, I mean, there wasn't any total disasters, but I certainly, as I said, lots of nights I was there till 11.30 saying, well, this isn't quite right, but there's got to be something else you do, and you just figure it out. Now, again, a really good cutter, I think, has an intuitive, they have a secret computer. Uh, in their brain that says this is how the body works, and this is how fabric and the body work together, and they do it. Yeah, I mean, you just just. I mean, when I first went to Stratford and watched a couple of their well, one legendary cutter. I mean, she would just put the fabric on the table, take out a ruler and a piece of chalk, and the next day you'd come in and there'd be this. It was dressed dress oh, wow. on the mannequin, you know. And it's just, it's, it's, I think it's, it truly is an intuitive skill. I mean, it, of course, can be taught, like sure. anything can. But I think if you're really brilliant at it, yeah. it's an intuitive skill.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You kind of have to get beyond the, mm. the rules and the understand it uh, on a deeper level. Um, and how about um, the, the shows that you worked on, was there a lot of opportunity to build from the ground up? Or was there yes. a lot of buying? or
1: uh, not? Yes, a lot of opportunity in the theater, not so much in, in film. I mean, that was, I think, what was fun, to do the musical of Anne of Green Gables, because we literally made everything. I mean, right. uh, under the bloomers for the dancers and everything. And you don't get to do that in film. I mean, they were rented or you, the principal's clothes were made, but you're counting on renting. A huge chunk of the stuff, even for the principals. I mean, if you've done a lot of business with some of the costume houses in England, it's it's very funny when you go to the movie and you say, "Oh my God, that looked an awful lot better on <laughs> X than it does on you." Right, 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 right. Uh, because you you have, and, and television's the same. You English television, you've seen the clothes, and you say, "Oh my dear, there it is again."
0: Uh, and how about your process of communicating what you want to the uh, to your cutters and to your wardrobe staff?
1: Well, as I said, I, I my drawing is not beautiful, but it's very explicit, and I know exactly what I want. And I think it's just a question of question and answer in both directions. You know, do you want the cuffs to actually close, or do you you know, are they just buttoned, or do you want, and so there's always a lot of technical stuff, and then particularly in the theater, there is a lot of technical information about what they're going to do in these clothes, and I mean, that's the nightmare when, you know, somebody tells you two days before it opens, so didn't anybody tell you that there was a quick change Mm -hmm. here? Uh, you know, and if you're doing something that's slightly experimental, it's then it's both you and the cutter. Right. I mean, I, I, for instance, with the Julius Caesar, I had this idea about how to, about armor, and I'd never seen it or I'd never made it, but I was sure you could do it, which was to make it like it was all leather, and it was to make it like a quilt. It's called trapunto oh, right. quilting, where the top is bigger than the bottom piece and you stuff it so that you get very three-dimensional mm-hmm. so we made at least two if not three fronts out of you know leather scraps and junk at Stratford so we weren't wasting money to make sure that this was a good idea and then once we'd figured it out you know they just churned out a whole That's army right. of Roman soldiers That's right.
0: and uh was there a- uh, uh, I imagine Stratford there's a lot more opportunity to do that kind of experimentation. There is, theater but
1: like every uh, art in the world now, money is getting shorter and shorter. And, um, I mean, I find Stratford, which I think is a good thing, on lesser characters using costumes that they do minor alterations to, but basically, because rather than, why are they just sitting in a warehouse hanging all up? Yeah. You might as well do something with them. Yeah. And I think that that's a good thing to do. And then other costumes, you know, I mean, I've seen things at Stratford in the last couple of years that were very experimental and weren't entirely successful. I mean, they were an interesting design idea, but you thought, no, we're not, we haven't quite either, we haven't quite invented the plastic to do this yet or, you know, some other reason. And every new product that comes on the market, you can... I mean, all the things that costumes used to be made out of, you know, when I first started in this business, I mean, they don't even make them anymore oh, right. because they're either carcinogenic or right. or they've just been supplanted by something much, much better to use. Yeah. Can, you,
0: can, you- can you give us an example?
1: Well, yes. We used to line anything that needed some stiffness with felt. Right. Well, now, you know, you don't, Do that because a it's hot, b it doesn't launder, and b it's just nasty. Now you still have it. There's still uses for it, but it's not that everything you make has to be have six layers of lining in it.
0: I remember uh, when I was working at Blythe, uh, we did a show that was taking place on the East Coast, uh, and uh, Jerry Franken had to wear a boiled wool sweater for the whole production, and he was. You're supposed to be on the you know, on the coast and in the ship, and it's really cold. <laughs> oh, my! And you're in this giant, like, summer theater, which was extremely hot already. And he's wearing this giant bald wool <laughs> sweater, it's the bane of his existence for yes. the entire run of the show. He hated it. Um, but uh, I guess now there's more. I mean, that that was what we, like somebody had donated it or was in stock, or we yeah. found something that looked right. Yeah,
1: but I well, imagine I remember years ago, I've i i can't say I'll run up and bring it down to show you but there was a because I don't know where it is but I saved it a hysterical article in the magazine Opera News about costumes I have worn and they were interviewing really top of the line uh, voices you know like Placido Domingo and people and it wasn't somebody in the chorus and they had found either the whole costume or bits of it and they were photographed in it and the gimmick was that they all made terrible faces and it was a but it was a very serious article about you know saying that they were asked to you know do something and the clothes just made it impossible and yeah. then what do you do well you have to figure out what you're going to do and do it yeah. because if you, I mean, that's the problem with his, people who reproduce historic clothes like totally accurately. This, right. is, this is a play. This isn't a museum. Yeah, exactly. And uh, what can you do? Yeah. In
0: much the same way as, you know, you don't build the back of the house behind backstage. You yeah. don't have to show the exact corset yeah or the understructure that makes yeah. it so uncomfortable yeah. from three hundred years ago um that's great and uh what uh, as well it's i think it's really interesting to talk about the perspective that you have um you know that of the theater that how it's changed in the past forty years and not oh. just in not just in like uh, generally, but uh, from your corner of the of the world in theater, like how well, I think
1: what well, my corner of the world I think is exactly the same as everybody else who's in the design fields corner. Oh, sorry, I'm basically. sorry. Corner That's of right. the world yeah. is that we are much more experimental. Uh-huh. Uh, we're using much more interesting materials, and I mean my the basic thing for me is that design on the stage has to tell a story. And if the story's not right, uh, somehow the experiment hasn't worked. I mean, if you go and you... I mean, and I've seen many plays like this. You sit there and you go, what is this supposed to be? You know, uh, I could... I uh, won't well, name names because that's not what we're doing. But, uh, but I, this, the, the play has to tell a story. And I think that realism... Still can conjure up on the stage. I mean, it can be quite wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it total realism, this isn't a movie, it's a play, it doesn't have to look quite like this, can also... But it, the story it's telling has to communicate itself just as much as the actors do to... Uh, the audience, and that's why I know that a lot of people hate plays with no curtains. But as a designer, I always like that because then I get a chance to sit before it starts and look at the set, whereas usually, if the play's good enough, you're not paying much attention to the set, Uh, and um, you don't get to see it. So, and I think that, I mean, I think Peter Brook, as much as anybody, did Everything to change that said that, you know, four feathers and a red nose from the dollar store mm-hmm. and you can do a brilliant Midsummer Night's Dream and suddenly... But I think sometimes people get ideas that they're just... They will never work and unfortunately they get themselves onto the stage mm-hmm. <laughs> and they never work and they never will work mm-hmm. because the story is is become so incomprehensible by what's going on that the poor actor, you know, is just fighting the whole time mm-hmm. with what's around him and what he's wearing or she is wearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, and I, we had spoken briefly, the, the, the first time, or I think the only time that I've been, uh, that I've met you before is during the process of, uh, we're going to talk, let's talk about, you know, let's start it back up a, for yeah. a second and talk about the ADC. Yeah. Because I've spoken to a couple people about the start of the ADC and its purpose, and the and the and the feeling, uh, uh, the the reason why it arose. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the Associated Designers of Canada, and we uh, it's been a little while since I've actually spoken about that with somebody. Um, so I want maybe if you give, could give us your take on um, where that came from, why it was felt it was a necessity, what was it, what it was trying to accomplish. Well, there
1: were beginning to be uh, a few independent films. There were beginning to be a few theater productions that were Mm native-born. And there was no, I mean, there was no way to control any of it. There was no contract. Mm -hmm. There was no uh, idea of what people should be reimbursed for their efforts. There was no idea of uh, anything to do with design and safety and all the things that go on around design and in theaters. And um, as I said, it was primarily people at the CBC who were um, beginning to do theater stuff as well and realized that they needed some kind of protection and some kind of controlling body. And... um, I don't know uh, how many people... I think it was a lot of, you know, person A talked to person B, and eventually they realized that person M was talking about exactly the same thing, and maybe they should try and get a group. And I know that the first official meeting of ADC I was not at, but the second one... Uh, I, somebody phoned me. I It was probably Les Lawrence, but I don't remember who... Uh, phoned me and said, you know, there's a meeting about designers on Tuesday night next month. Can you come? And so I thought, well, yes, why not? So along I went. And, I mean, it took, I think just the fact that it took so long to get a a sensible contract in place for uh, design, you know, demonstrates how little real interest and knowledge, but mostly interest there was in this country in promoting design. I mean mm-hmm. you know it, the idea was that you would be paid the smallest amount of money you would possibly be persuaded to accept to do this, and there was no there was nothing else built into it you know yeah. I mean you know the for instance actors' equity uh, had a hard time getting built into their contract that what touched your body in a costume had to be cleaned right. every day. or <laughs> uh, Washed, underwear and stuff, and the costume had to be cleaned on a weekly, monthly basis, whatever the designer said. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge battle with equity, I can remember, because my husband <laughs> has been a member of equity for years, and I used to read this with fascination that there would actually be managements in New York who were arguing with equity about, cleanliness. <laughs> you know. This yes. isn't in the dark ages. This is in the 1960s. Yeah. So it's, Th- it's, 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 it's been the evolution of the theater in the last, I guess, really now we can say the last century mm-hmm. in terms of simply protection and, mm-hmm. you know, the things that make it a real job, I guess, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. are... Uh, have come into being.
0: Yeah. Uh, it does um it does strike me since we've been talking we talked earlier about the amateur theater and the birth of Canadian theater from that tradition. It now it doesn't seem surprising that that is a take that that producers would have that we yeah. go well theater is a vocation it's uh, some sort of uh because we because people in theater tend to do it because they feel they have a need to mm-hmm. there seems to be it seems to be easy to make the excuse that well we don't have to pay you like a real worker. Yeah. We don't have to, or we don't have to offer you exactly. health and safety protections because of course you're doing this cuz you love it.
1: Yeah, and they they still we still are we still have these kinds of fights with, you know, pact and independent producers who and it's all about money. It's always yeah. about money. But, you know, who seriously don't want to as I said protect their own investment and their own performers? Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're, we're lucky. We did have one terrible theater accident mm-hmm. that I know about in Ontario, but that because somebody fell off a ladder in a high school gym setting up a mm-hmm. a theater, you know, performance space in one that wasn't the performance space and was killed. But you know, there are all sorts of t- things that you just in the workplace don't expect to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On the other hand, you they also get carried away. <laughs> One of the years I was at Stratford, Workman's Compensation arrived to do their inspection and said, everybody who works in this building has to wear work boots.
0: Right, right.
1: In the entire building. In the entire building. And it was, I mean, it was, they it, well, it was funny on one hand. On the other hand, it was it was serious because you can't push a sewing machine, a pedal sewing machine, yes. With boots on, <laughs> it steel, doesn't with work. Steel toes. Yeah, exactly. And you had to be able to feel what you're doing. Well, that that there was got to be some solution to this. Couldn't you get different machines? No, this is how a sewing machine works in a factory because this is a factory making costumes for a play. And it it, it got to the point where it was just hysterical because it went on and on. And we were asked to sign petitions. We were asked to sign, you know things and it was just because they were trying to get a bunch of mostly women but some men in the costume department to wear boots the rest of the people already wore boots you know
0: that's uh that's crazy uh and it also i mean there was for many years especially in alternative theaters the ministry of labor was never around like they had no idea what was going on in those spaces no
1: they uh, no, no
0: they didn't and if they did in many cases, that would have been shut down. I mean, it wasn't until the start, like, in the middle of the 90s when people started, uh, when the Ministry of Labour came out with its first, mm-hmm. um, you know, theatre safety Oh, thing
1: unbelievable. No, it's amazing that there weren't dozens of people seriously, seriously injured. I mean, people did equity. When Charmian King fell on a set, and which was entirely the set's fault, not hers, and broke her leg... Equity and Workman's Compensation did sort of seriously start to work together about actor protection, and that very quickly shifted down to about the technical workers as well. I mean, you, well, you know, if you're not, you used to do electrics, you know, things about ladders and things were rigidly enforced. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: that being said, I worked on it when I was at Stage West in '94. um... We routinely did work on a couple different a frames, which at that time, even in '94 or '93, were illegal. Yeah, and we like we that was our daily basis, and we didn't know we were young workers. Nobody, you Mm -hmm. know, nobody told we were also contractors, so um, we didn't really pay into that system, and so we weren't aware of it. Um, The um, uh, Let's talk about minimum fees. Yeah. Um, because it seemed like a long time, like equity had had a minimum fee structure for years. ever, years yeah. and years. Uh, and there was still a lot of resistance in mm-hmm. PACT and at least in Canada um, to actually have a structure that said, well, you know, this will be the base fee based mm-hmm. on the house size. Um, what can you remember about that fight? And Well, the fight
1: was oh, primarily amongst the members themselves. And there was a certain amount of fear, which exists to some degree to this day, that if you turn it down because they won't pay you, mm-hmm. somebody else will do the job, and it'll happen. Yeah. And uh, uh, that I think is always the basis of that kind of quarrel about. But I mean, we have to—you have to, to remember—you know, Actors Equity was founded because actors decided they weren 't going to buy their own costumes anymore, right. and so there's always from you know been that that uh, fight going on, but in canada it it was a fight with a d c for well many many years mm-hmm. that and I think the 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 core of the problem was the notion that if you didn't do it, somebody else would right. and it worked a hundred percent you know if you said no i 'm not going to Work for that kind of money, well, goodbye, Miss Smith, and Miss Jones will be happy to do it tomorrow. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Also, goes to the. And
1: PACT also didn't want to get themselves locked into, you know, a stipulated reimbursement
0: for anything. Right, or a closed shop for that matter. Yeah. Was there any attempt uh, early on? um, I may have asked Shalom this, but. Uh, was there any attempt early on to consider whether or not designers should work in a closed shop like, like actors? There would be equity theatres and ADC theatres. Uh, like there, there
1: was, but at the time, my recollection, there was a lot of conversation about that. But the conversation was really that we're not ready because Canadian Actors' Equity was basically an offshoot of American Equity. So right. they were a firmly, firmly established yeah. outfit and could just take over all those rules and regulations. And ADC, which was a very new organization, was not didn't have any of that kind of tradition or background or knowledge on the part of managers. I mean, sure, New York producers will argue with you to this day because they're looking to save a buck, but yeah. there's a point at which they know if they want you know, designer X to do their latest musical, they're going to have to pay them at least this and probably more. Now, the other argument that um, took the same road, more or less, only less well-traveled, was royalties, you know. And again, I think that should be open to producers and performers and designers that, uh, you know, if the show is going to five different venues. It's very different than one different venue and everybody else gets paid, why shouldn't the designer? Yeah, that's true. And so you may be, or if you know that you're working on a hit, but that's almost impossible to tell, yeah. and you're going to make, I mean, some designers have made tons of money. I mean, literally tons of money out of, you know, a hit that ran, something that ran on Broadway for
0: yeah.
1: 10 years. Yeah, and strange. but that's a gamble that you always have to take, and so a lot of designers, it's to this day, don't want to do that.
0: Uh, awesome. Um, now, how about theater training today? Um, what do you think? Uh, like, what do you think are the important things that designers today should be learning? Uh, maybe that perhaps they haven't learned in the past. Uh, I think or- where there's a huge gap in theatre training,
1: and this may be a very personal opinion and something that I have encountered only recently is that there are a lot of people out there who I think probably are real artists, but they don't know how it works. And having come from that place myself, I th- I really do believe that there needs to be more emphasis on technical training. In other words, if you go to, you know, the Twitchit, Wichit Amateur Theatre in a D or an F house Mm -hmm. to design something, basically the process has to be the same as if you're designing at Stratford. The process does, not the work. And they don't seem to know that. I mean, I had a couple of bad experiences toward the end of my time that I was really, I had wonderful experiences with uh, assistants at Soul Pepper. I would like to say little advertisement. But other cases of people who, and I just, we would sit back and say, what did they do for four years? Because they don't know how to do anything. Right, right. You know, I mean, they don't know the principles of, of shopping, they don't know the principles of keeping the books, they don't know anything about the technical process of how A gets onto the stage and uh, that there's more to great art than (laughs) than just knowing, you know, how to manipulate space or tell a story with your set. You have to know something about how it gets there and that's constantly changing, which you could kind of... It's changing slowly enough that you tend to be able to pick that up yourself, but the basic things about like just how to keep the stage manager's notes Mm -hmm. in order Mm -hmm. along with the day's budget Mm -hmm. or spend expenditures is really simple, but you have to know how to somebody has to tell you how to do it. And I find that there's a lot of a lot of technical information which doesn't seem to be taught accompanying the job. But as I said, that may be a very personal perspective, and I've just had bad experiences. But uh, I'm not sure. Yeah,
0: it, it, yeah, it maybe. Uh, but uh, I did have a chat with um, uh, Lorenzo Savuini mm. yeah. at uh, Soul Pepper about a month ago. Yeah. We had a lovely conversation, um, and uh, it seems like the idea of apprenticing for many years it. Uh, at one point, like especially in the Stratford model, yeah. and to a, to a certain extent in the Shaw model, there was a there was a there was a training aspect yes, that was, was. was very focused on training, and then and those kind of practical skills about managing, especially at Stratford, managing the machine as an assistant, mm. you're really there to sort of get the process down the mm. pipe, right? And understanding all those kind of machinations is important. Um, but then it became uh, over time, I think probably because the workload. Um, you had to do because the the cost of living was going up, but the fees were not. There yeah. became a point where you had to take on a lot more work yeah. to make the same amount of money, and so assistance just right. became a way of extra hands. Yeah, uh, and it wasn't a training position necessarily. It mm-hmm. was a get the model done and then you know do this and then be there from my, in my stead instead of actually having opportunity to train mm-hmm. people. Um, and it seems like that's where like an, uh, an apprenticeship program. Would have to fit into that that university model somehow to sort of say yes well it has
1: to fit in somewhere in the process of of being becoming a fully fledged designer whether it's at the university level or where it is but i mean i remember the first show i did at stratford uh i was given a an assistant who had no desire to be a designer Mm -hmm she her function in life was that she was an assistant, and she was fabulous at it right. uh, but she had been there for five years before, and she knew exactly how it worked, yeah. so there was no wasting time about if you you know if you want belt buckles that look like this, we have to order them tomorrow because right. they come from Greece or i mean I'm, that's a far stretch but it's not quite as far stretched as you think it is mm-hmm. you know and if you if you want a lot of painting, we have to talk right now about a schedule and, you know, when it's going to happen and who's going to do it. And from that point of view, those assistants, and I think their role has substantially changed. I think they are now wannabe designers. Right. And... um I think that there is a, a huge role i mean the the film business discovered this in you know in the heyday of the in studio film mm-hmm. of assistants who had no desire to you know run Edith head down with the truck. they just wanted to make sure that everything that Edith wanted happened right, right, right. and uh, that's where you that's where you really learn mm-hmm. is if you know how. what the process work how the process works and you get a handle on what the designer wants and how they work then bingo but if you've got a new designer because every space is different I mean every space in the world even just knowing the simplest thing uh is different than it is at you know, theater A is so different than theater B. I mean, particularly if you're working like the Washington Opera, which I've worked at a couple of times, where the wardrobe is nowhere near the theater. It's like half an hour away. So that was a whole other lesson to learn that, you know, you couldn't just say in the, on the break, would you just mind, mm-hmm. you know, letting me talk to Miss So and So about the second act change? I mean, it just never happened, yeah. and that's where the really good assistant. And I think that it, like all assistants in any field, whether you're a you know assistant nurse or a typist or whatever you are, mm-hmm. that there's a place that that should be taught, mm-hmm. because there are people who are really good at that, and they you know they have some artistic sense and some you know knowledge of what good is is mm-hmm. but they're basically there to help make it happen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know yeah.
0: it seems to be the model in New York there's a lot of people who oh, yeah. work as assistants or associates for ever. Yeah. oh uh, yeah and-
1: I, I have a, f- a very good friend who is the co- the fabric the buyer mm-hmm. at the Met yeah. and yeah. that's all he's ever wanted to do I mean he was he's a graduate of the design program at NYU mm-hmm. And he said, it doesn't take you very long to realize that the person who sat beside you at a drawing table for four years has a great deal more talent than you do. Sure. But I know what to do. And, of course, he makes, being at the top of the heap at the Metropolitan Opera, he makes a very good living. Oh, sure. yeah. But, you know, it's, it is. he said, he said to me several times, it took a while to you know they don't teach you everything about fabric at theater school and suddenly you're working with a designer who said, i always make my courses course out of x y and z and you have no idea what they're talking about uh, you sir, learn very quickly and i think that that i mean it's like being an rn being a nursing assistant you know there needs to be there needs to be more I can only call it technical training, for lack of a better word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it just makes everybody's life easier. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Including the theaters. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah and saves money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uses the budget wisely, etc. Yeah. All right. So just just to wrap it up here, okay. Uh, the the life of a designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems one of the one another one of the things that's, that that's come up is that. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, there were a lot more opportunities. Well, there were fewer there were, people doing it.
1: There were fewer people yeah. doing it and a lot more opportunities. Yeah. And um, also many, many fewer copros. Right, yes. um, And it took a while for designers and actors and managements to work that one out mm-hmm. as well. But yes, I think we are probably training too many people, to be designers, and a lot of those people, rather than give up and say, well, I, you know, I'm not Edith Head or whoever, uh, would be that they might become the world's best assistants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as I said, I think the, the biggest problem is it, it looks like we're spending more money. Whereas if you had, you know, person X who had been a design assistant at Stratford for 20 years, mm. and that's what their life was. They weren't, you know, trying to be something else. I d- you would, ultimately, it's a money saver, It's yeah. what it is, yeah. because you don't fart around, yeah. you know, even in terms of hours. I yeah. mean, you know, uh, because when you go to Stratford, for instance, there are a lot more places to buy materials and shop. Yeah because they, they can do, they, they're willing to do, shop some shopping out of country even. But, it, and if you don't know where those are, you're not going to say it and you're counting on to find this information kind of by accident. Whereas if the designer said, well, we've had very good luck with this bootmaker in Bulgaria for five years and I'm, I'm you know, we'll use them kind of thing and i think it's like being any kind of assistant and we aren't training enough of them
0: yeah that's a good point uh, but how about living the life of a designer like do you think that uh, it's an a re- it's a reasonable choice to make these days given the climate it depends
1: of the it, i mean it's, it depends partly on geography i mean it's a very big country as we know and it depends I think a lot on your personal life and what choices you want to make and how much you're willing to divorce your, Not, I mean, not literally divorce yourself, but separate yourself from your personal life. Um, and if you and your partner can work out something that works for you, fine. I think if you can't, it's led to a lot of unhappy marriages that I know about and... Partnerships, yeah. you know, because it is precarious. It does mean you're. I mean, it's not just working long hours at home. It's that you're often away from where home is, and mm-hmm. so it is. It is precarious in more than just the money aspect. Of it it's sure. the practice of traveling all the time is precarious.
0: Yeah, it, just, it seems like the people who are actually made. Um uh, you know, a convincing career out of it are not the ones who have. I mean, some people do, but most people have to work the circuit, yeah, and 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 go from regional to regional to regional across right. the country and back and forth. And so, eight months of the year, at least, you are traveling, mm-hmm. and then the rest of the four, you're in Stratford or Shaw or mm-hmm. uh, or out of country doing, you know, the kind of the festival yeah. work. Uh, and so, if, as a lifestyle, I always found that really enjoyable. Like that part of the business, yeah,
1: it is. Oh, yeah, yeah I, I think it. you can say. <laughs> You in I did enjoy working even in strange I did an opera in Milwaukee you no know, Milwaukee's not a place that anybody would really want to go for long but there's enough and I you know interested enough in the world to say okay you know I'm going to be in Milwaukee for the next six weeks um but it also as I said that's the good side if you're interested in that and the bad side is just the things I was talking about is being away and you know, getting used to living that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and it is partly geography. I mean, if you're, you know, a designer working in England, you can be in the farthest theater from your home in an hour and a half, that's right. That's right. you know, <laughs> and you can come home at night. Yeah. You don't have to go anywhere. Well, maybe for a week, <laughs> but that's it. Exactly. You know.
0: uh, and, and that's great. Now, is there anything you'd like to add uh at- when you reflect upon your career in the theatre in Canada, or...? uh,
1: Um, I just (laughs) wish that there was more, uh, not so much for myself anymore, but I wish that there was more acknowledgement in the art world Mm -hmm. in this country, and I think in any country, but in this country particularly, that scenic and costume and lighting and sound and all those, and video and... All those things, they are art. Mm-hmm. They're not just some technical skill that somebody learned at Ryerson. Mm-hmm. You know, that it, they're, they're making art. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to have a lot more acknowledgement of that in the media, mm-hmm. in galleries, and anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's the only way you're going to teach the public that mm-hmm. this, is, this is an art form. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I'm sure you've been in a costume show somewhere. And, you know, the public is going, oh, that's how you do that. I mean, my favourite story, which I was told by my friend, is that when they started broadcasting operas from the Met, and this is absolutely true, there is a person who runs around with a bucket of paint. It's a very short, dumpy, middle-aged lady. And touches up hinges that have chipped their paint off. This is in the this is in the intermissions between, oh, in between, okay. between the setups, <laughs> and that's all she does is touch up. I mean, she's a set painter on their crew, but right. she basically she's the intermission person. She's been doing it for years. People became fascinated by this, and she started to get fan mail.
0: Oh wow, that's
1: extreme. But you know because. There's thousands of people who have gone to the opera for years. People who have given the opera money because they've got it to give to them, and they had no idea that you know you look at the, at the now the Met is uh, 62 people on a crew right. to change from Act One to Act Two is right. pretty unusual. But people had no idea that that's what happened. I mean, it was just it happened, and you know you that's why you were out in the lobby having a drink, and you came back and. But anyway, I, I loved it when somebody, when Michael and she started to get fan mail. Yeah,
0: that's great. I wish that we all could get fan mail. Yeah, <laughs> like the public was, was, was supportive enough to acknowledge yeah. it. I think that I think that's a reasonable goal. Yeah, right to, to to set. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to add?
1: No. Okay. I think so, well, thank I you. Mean, so. This, yeah, thank you very much
0: for being on the title block. That was designer Martha Mann speaking to me from her home in Toronto in August of 2016. Next time, an interview with sound designer and composer Richard Farron. Also, look out for more Bellows episodes coming soon. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at TheTitleBlockCA and on Facebook.com slash TheTitleBlockPodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. Don't forget that if you like the show, support us on Patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you wonder if Canadian theater really has left its amateur past in the past. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on the Title Block.